0: So what is it that makes someone a Christian? Or the language of last week, how do you become one of the sheep that follows the good shepherd? It's a great question, it's the kind of question that we need to wrestle with, because it depends on who you speak to, the kind of answer you will get, your answer will vary. So some will say, you are a Christian because you are born here you're in what some have been arguing this past week is a is a Christian nation, even though it turns out many who tick the box on the census of being a Christian, surprise, surprise, they're probably not Christians. And anyway, I'm not convinced that holds water, because no doubt we're in a privileged country where we have something of a Christian heritage, where we can still talk about matters of faith. But if our country shapes what we believe, well, most of us ought to end up being secular materialists, because that seems to be the kind of environment that we live in, and indeed experience shows that is not far from the truth. Or well, some say, well, you're simply of the religious ilk. That is why you're a Christian. You're the kind of person who likes spiritual stuff, you like matters of faith. The trappings that go with it I'm into sports, or knitting, or sailing, or fishing. You're into stained glass windows, you're into hymns, you're into liturgy, you like quiche, therefore you end up being a Christian, that is how you are wired, they say. And again the problem there is, well you often meet people who just aren't into religious type things, and they end up being ardent followers of Jesus, their life is utterly turned around, flipped on its head, you wouldn't see it coming at all, you weren't expecting it. Or some say, well, maybe you end up being a Christian because you've had some sort of bizarre, God zaps you type experience, the the Damascus road type thing. Maybe that's why some people end up being Christians. And again, the problem there, though, is that many don't have that kind of Damascus road, God zapping type experience. It's just over a period of time they come to believe in Jesus for themselves almost as C.S. Lewis put it, they're reluctant converts. They're convinced by the evidence and so end up bowing the knee to Jesus. So what is it that makes someone a Christian? What is it? Well, it's striking, I think, this, this passage for this evening, these verses, has an awful lot to say about that question. Before we dive in, I want you to notice a couple of aspects that I think John is keen for us to latch onto. The first is this flow of belief and unbelief in this passage, in these verses. It starts off with unbelief there in verse 25. And then in the middle, verse 31 to 33, you've got violent unbelief. You see it again in 39. And then at the end of the passage, at 40, 41, 42, you've got belief and trust. So there's contrasting responses to Jesus. Contrasting reactions. I'm sure some of you will be familiar with those kinds of reactions in your own life, even if you just engage briefly in talking to people about their take on Jesus. I was hearing of contrasting responses from off the back of the, the mission at Oxford University about three weeks ago with um, a chap called Tim Keller and Mike Kane were presenting at Jesus and the gospel. And upwards of ninety people were interested in doing the kind of follow-up courses, thinking through uh, more carefully what the Christian faith is about, and yet coupled with that, there was active unkindness towards uh, Christians, towards the mission. Um, things written in college newspapers, uh, arguments and conversations to people's faces, contrasting reactions to the, people, to the person of Jesus. So the first broader thing to notice is this, these contrasting belief and unbelief you see there, different reactions to Jesus. The second, I take it, is the means by which John thinks we ought to believe. That makes sense. We've seen them before. There are key witnesses in John's gospel uh, that John, this this, got this writer of this theological biography, wants to persuade us with. We've seen them again in the past. We see works in verse twenty-five and twenty-six. These these signs, these miracles that Jesus is doing, to point people to who He is, to His identity. And that is coupled with the testimony of John the Baptist, particularly, and verse 40 to 42. Why believe in Jesus? Well, because these two testimonies are clear. And John wants to convince us with them. He says, you can trust them. So there are the kind of broader uh, themes going on. We're going to look more closely at the verses, and we're going to split it into three. And we will ask three questions. And the first one is there in verse 22 to 31, asking the question, well, how can you follow Jesus? If you're a note taker and it helps you. The second one is verse 32 to 39, why follow Jesus? And then the final one, verse 40 to 42, is simply following Jesus. But the first one, how can you follow Jesus? Now notice the historical context, first of all, in 22 to 23. It is the festival of dedication. It's what we might call Hanukkah it was a festival where the Jewish people remembered a man called Judas Maccabeus because he liberated their temple. Uh, he rescued it from uh, the Syrians who had sacked it and put up an altar to Zeus in the temple. And Judas Maccabeus, this beast of a man, comes in and wipes it out and they remembered it year on year afterwards um, to remember him liberating the temple. Here is them celebrating a rescuer for the people of God that happened in around uh, Eight, uh, 164 BC, so you won't find it in your Bibles. came in between the Old and the New Testament. Judas Maccabeus. That's what's going on at the festival that they're celebrating. And that's the context. Listen again to the conversation and see how it is that you come to be one who follows Jesus. Verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you. But you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. So how do you follow Jesus? Well, in the text there are two aspects. The first one is... You look at the evidence Following Jesus isn't some kind of giant leap of faith Where you disengage your brain and your faculties and you, and you leap out into the dark Perhaps even against all evidence See there in verse 25 Jesus says "You know These works I do, they are compelling The objective evidence is compelling There are good reasons for trusting him For some people, that's a real surprise in our culture because they say, well, you have faith. And by that faith word, they almost mean superstition. I'm a a person of fact, they say. I base my life on hard evidence. You're a person of faith. You don't. If it makes you feel good, that's great. But please don't try and bother me with it. Don't impose it on me. Thank you very much. And yet Jesus wants to say, the evidence... That you see these miracles, these works, these signs—they're compelling. They are testimony enough. How do you follow Jesus? You look at the evidence. We saw it back in chapter nine, actually. I wonder whether chapter nine and chapter ten are meant to be paired together for us. Remember, if you were around for chapter nine, that the blind man being healed—it seems that nine is the action almost, and ten is the explanation. And there, no one doubts that he has been healed. This man has been given sight again. The evidence was blatant. And it's testimony enough. And people say, well, they were naive in those days. They weren't rational thinkers like we are. Uh, and yet, why do the crowds flock to this miraculous man? Why is Jesus causing such a stir if that sort of stuff happened all the time? <coughs> They weren't stupid. They didn't just think people can become unblind. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. that They want to check out the evidence. People flock to him because it's so extraordinary. Because they knew he was someone special. I think then one line of application for us must be that we need to examine the evidence. We need to look at it for ourselves. Often it's just not something people do as grown-ups. They stop believing in Father Christmas and the Tooth Fairy, and they stop believing in God. And never go back and think about it again. If that is you, let me encourage you, challenge you to look at the evidence carefully, to to bother to do it. It's why John wrote it down for us. You remember those verses at the end of John's Gospel, in chapter 20, tells us why he writes. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you don't own a Bible, take one and read it. That's your gift uh, on us. Take it away with you. If there's just a hint that it might be true, it's worth doing. It might be the most important decision you will ever make in your life. So please take one away with you. So firstly, how do you become a Christian? How do you follow Jesus? We need to look at the evidence. Secondly, there's more to it than that. Secondly, we need God to intervene. Look at verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now this can be complicated stuff. And I'm happy to chat it over with you later. But just notice, just as in chapter 9 where Jesus opens the blind man's eyes. So in some sense we need our eyes to be opened in the same way. We need God to intervene. A Christian, do you see it there in verse 29? A Christian is a gift from the Father to the Son and then the Son opens their eyes or opens their ears so that they can hear his voice so they can see who he is they can respond to him and they're given life the life they were made for they're given security they're given safety we need God to intervene now if you're a Christian here I would I'm not a man who puts money on things, but I would put money on you having chatted with a friend about the gospel or about Jesus and you think it's gone amazingly and you think it has been so clear and it's so obvious and it's so blatant and they're bound to pray the prayer. They want to become a Christian and they've just got the wrong end of the stick completely. Or you've taken them along to a talk or to an event and you're thinking, this is fantastic, this is just so clear, this is what they need to hear. And you get out afterwards and they've completely misunderstood it or completely missed it. they just come out talking about the illustrations or, or his dress sense or whatever it might be, and they've missed what he was talking about. I say, so we can't argue people into the kingdom. It's why we need to pray because we need God to intervene. And clarity and explanation is great, but we need God to intervene. Simply winning the argument is not enough. That can be really hard for some of us to remember. But it's really important. We need God to intervene. So it's not a silly example, but but it's never like next Wednesday. Okay, now what happens next Wednesday? That's not rhetorical. What's happening next Wednesday? (coughs) What's the date? It's the 29th. The 29th of February. What can happen on the 29th of February? Bachelors beware. (laughs) That's exactly it. So the norm in our culture is that men are, are, are to propose to the women. That's the norm. That's the cultural norm at least. And yet, on the 29th of February, once every four years, it is culturally and socially appropriate for the opposite to happen. Okay, Any bachelors in the room, watch out. And yet, if I can put it like this, it is never February the 29th for the Lord. If the church is the bride, he is always picking his bride. He always picks his bride. Even if we think we chose God, then actually one day it will become clear that the reality is he chose us. We were a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son then opened our eyes. And the objection comes, well, why do, why do we bother trying to tell people about Jesus? Or, or maybe you say, well, if I'm not one of the gifts from the Father to the Son, then what am I doing here? Is there any hope for me? <coughs> well, again, remember the first half of our answer. Remember, John is seeking to persuade you of who Jesus is. He's giving you the evidence such that God might open your eyes. He wants you to see Jesus. Clearly he thinks that engaging our minds, that these testimonies is important. He wants to convince you, he wants you to have life. And anyway, who knows who you are? Prayerfully come and find him, come to Jesus. I'm convinced he will never drive anyone away. He genuinely, honestly, and truly comes to him. And for the Christian, this kind of this kind of love, this kind of security. As we hear the voice of the Son, means means safety. Verse twenty nine. It means means whatever's going on in life, however hard, however shaky we might feel in our faith, we're protected with Him. He won't let us go. We can trust Him. For us, it means we're safe. For them, it was sacrilege. They accuse Him of blasphemy. And they try and chuck stones at him. Verse 31. So how do you follow Jesus? How can you follow Jesus? Number one, examine the evidence. Number two, we need God to intervene. Secondly, and we'll be much briefer on the rest of the passage. Verse 32 to 39. Why follow Jesus? The short answer is because of who he is. Again, remember the context, we're celebrating Hanukkah with them. We're remembering one who comes to rescue the temple, to liberate the people. 200 years before. And who comes onto the scene? Well, verse 32, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? Says Jesus. We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Now it's a slightly complicated argument. It's from Psalm eighty two, you can probably see the little footnote there in your in your Bibles. Um, It's it's an interesting little interchange and all it seems to really do is Jesus buys a bit more time. He sort of takes the steam out of the argument. So it goes like this, verse 33, number 1, Jesus claims to be God. Secondly, they want to kill him for it. Thirdly, Jesus says, well in Psalm 82, God describes Israel's judges as sons of God. Four, so people can be God's. Five, so why are you trying to kill me? Do you not see that in the Bible God gives the title of sons of God to certain individuals? So why are you trying to kill me for something that's in your Bible? They pick up stones to throw at him and he opens the Bible and he baffles them. He focuses them in on this particular little complicated bit in Psalm 82, this little anomaly perhaps in their faith. He says, hang on, stop and think about what I'm saying reflect on the complexities don't just give me your knee jerk reaction that you want to kill me don't just try and get rid of the things that you don't understand but reflect on them maybe you're here and you're being confronted with the reality of who Jesus is and he says well don't just chuck it away if you don't like it it's just easy to get rid of the things that we don't get or we don't like Jesus says no think about it That kind of argument you hear from people and they say, well obviously the Bible is full of contradictions. You say, okay, which ones? Well everyone knows that it is. Okay, which ones? Have you read the Bible? Well no, but it's that sort of, I'm just not going to be thinking about it, thank you. I'm just going to raise up the things I don't like and put my head in the sand. John stacks up the evidence for us. He says it's compelling evidence. His testimony is true, you can trust it. And then the question is asked of us, do we want to stone him? Or do we want to stop and think? He continues, verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escapes their grasp. For the second time, they, they want to do away. They want to kill him. They're confronted by his identity, and they want to stone him. Just on the way past, one um, striking wake-up call for me in this passage is that miracles, signs, works don't necessarily change people's hearts. That's a fascinating, thing, isn't it? Just just to see the works <coughs> doesn't mean that people repent. That they'd actually diagnose the state of the people's hearts rather than changing their hearts. So, just because someone sees something amazing, something miraculous, just because maybe even someone is healed, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to bow the knee to the one who did the healing to to Jesus. It's easy to lean on the miraculous and to think, well, what that person needs is to see something fabulous, see something extraordinary. And yet these people have seen that. And they don't bow the knee. Some believe. And there are our final few verses following Jesus. Then he went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days, and there he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So remember, in John the Gospel writer's mind, here's the second foundational witness, the, the testimony to think about. We've got the, the, the works of Jesus, and here we have John the Baptist now, the witness of, of, of him. And interestingly, see, the belief comes not in seeing miracles. Not in encountering these these signs, these works of Jesus. But simply because of the testimony about John, because of what he said. Jesus leaves the temple in Jerusalem. He withdraws across the Jordan River. He goes back northeast to the place where John had spoken of Jesus back in chapter 1 at the start of the Gospel. And in contrast to the rest of the passage, here we have fruit. Here we have people believing because of the words of John. I take it, it's where we come in as we come to the end of these verses. We asked the question at the start what makes someone follow Jesus? And we said we need to look at the evidence, we need God to intervene. And yet, look at the passage, it ends with the importance of others speaking about Jesus, of the testimony of others to Jesus. Now, John was a unique person in salvation history. He had a unique role to play. But it's fascinating that what is said of John is that he said things. He pointed people away from himself to Jesus. I guess, I guess for pretty much everyone in this room, that pattern will have repeated itself down the line. So, whether it be with parents or colleagues or youth leaders or, or neighbours or friends or, or people coming to a talk like with Dano next week, then we hear words spoken and they take us to Jesus and we go and meet him and we see that it's true and we trust him and we believe him. would going be amazing to think that, that our testimony are words although tiny in comparison to John's would just bring people to encounter Jesus for themselves and to believe him let's pray My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our Lord, there are some complicated and difficult things for us to grasp there. But we thank you. For the certainty we can have when we trust Jesus. Thank you that if we're a Christian here this evening, we know that you have intervened in our life and brought us to to follow the Good Shepherd. Thank you that you've given us eternal life. Thank you that we shall never perish. Thank you we can have security. we pray for any who might be here who don't yet trust you or or for friends or colleagues or neighbours that we long to witness to Father we pray for them that that they might do the hard work of looking at the evidence properly that they might rightly grasp what faith is and Lord we pray just in light of of John the Baptist too we we pray that in some small way we might imitate him as we speak of Jesus as we take people to him we pray that you might use our weak and our feeble efforts to grow your kingdom and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen